I just don't have as much to say when I get here, and Dad doesn't talk much all week, and so he's got a lot to say when Sunday comes, so we're just a little different, but we both have a deep love and appreciation for reading Scripture and being able to learn from Scripture and to share anything that we learn, and uh, so I just want to pick up where he has been and left off, I believe, where he left off last week. I know he's been in 1 John chapter 3. And just when I think of 1 John, a few things come to mind. And if I was just to condense what I believe was John the Apostle's goal was to make certain that the people of God know that they are loved by God, that they're confident in that, and that they have assurance of uh, eternal life and eternal love in God. And so I'm going to pick up kind of where he left off, but I do want to back up. I know we got to about verse 9, chapter 3 last week, but I want to read the first verse again. First John chapter 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So question then, what does it mean to say that I'm a child of God? to have God as your father. Several years ago, a friend who was a missionary that this church supported, and I believe we actually do still support him, he, uh, he gave me a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And uh, just to paraphrase, paraphrase one of J.I. Packer's statements, basically comes to this conclusion that the essence of the Christian life is to know, enjoy, walk with, pray to, and worship God as our Father. And he puts this statement forward and says, if you want to know, you know what a person's relationship is with God, if they really have one, pay attention to how much, they make, how much focus they draw to knowing God as Father. What do they make of being a child of God? John wants us to know what it is to be a child of God, and to know him as Father. So right after John talks about this in the beginning of chapter 3, I know there's some discussion in there about how children of God behave. Um, I know Dad covered sin and righteousness and those things last week. But immediately after that, he starts talking about our love for one another, for brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where I want to pick up this morning. So look with me at verse 10. In a moment, we're going to read kind of a large portion of this chapter. But in verse 10, it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So here's a picture that I want us to see today. When a father loves his children... And those children experience it. They, they grow up in it and they enjoy it. They live in that love. 
they will begin to reflect that love to one another. My boys are at an age now at uh, 19 and 14 where they're becoming buddies and friends and they get along and they take off together and go do things, boy things together and it's nice to watch, but it wasn't always that easy. If you've raised brothers, you know that sometimes they get at each other. <laughs> and uh, There was a discussion um, many years ago. I sat them both down. With, they, were, um, they were doing this a little bit like brothers do, and I sat them both down and I made them really think about the fact that it hurts me as their dad when they don't behave with love toward one another. And I said, you know, Hayden, you know that I love Evan. He's my son. I'm his dad. Evan, you know I love Hayden. He's my son. I need you two to love each other. If you love me, you'll love what I love. You'll love each other. And, you know, they still were brothers, and they still had moments like this. But they've grown up being loved. And they've learned how to love one another as a result. That's supposed to happen with all of us in the family of God. We are here because we are loved by God. And because we are experiencing the love of God, we're supposed to be immersed in the love of God. He expects that as his children, we love one another. This is supposed to be a picture of the church. And this is the church that we want to be. People who are immersed and amazed by the love of God. It should be amazing to us at all times that he loves us and that we're called his children. So that's the first thing that we pray today, is that we would be people who are immersed in God's love and amazed by God's love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the way that I read it to you this morning from the ESV, I think something gets lost. I love the English Standard Version. It's really easy for me to read big sections of it and to understand it. But really, there's, a, there's something that's lost here in the way we've translated it. Maybe you grew up reading a different translation. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And there's a question there. What kind of love is this? John was amazed. How is it that he can love us in this way that we can be called his children? John was amazed by it. Growing up, around faith family, I can tell you this. Um, this church has always been made up of different people from different walks of life, different backgrounds. They come from different places. We have different personalities, different jobs, different ages, different stages of life. We have different challenges and problems. This could get ugly, but we have different political views, some of us, right? Some would say those political positions are our problems, right? That could get an ugly discussion real fast. The one thing that brings us together each week should be that we know that we are children of God. We are loved by God as his sons and his daughters. So that should be the most important thing. All those other things don't matter so much if we understand that, that we are loved by God and we are his sons and his daughters. 
That's what brings us together. That's what is supposed to unite us. As a result of this, we should be compelled to action. And that action should be we love one another. Let's read a larger part of this. Let's uh, pick it up in verse 11. I'm just going to read all the way through verse 24. And see this theme of love for others. Starting in verse 11, it says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. That's a lot to take all at once. But notice something throughout this passage. Love in the family. Love for one another. It's all intended to reflect the love that we have received from God, our Father. And when you think about this, this has been the emphasis from the beginning. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, how did he respond? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he gives a second. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In John chapter 13, he tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people will know that you're a follower of Jesus. It's not because you say, I'm a Christian. It's not because you say, well, I go to church. They will know that you're a child of God if you have love for one another. Uh, 
I don't know how true this is. I've heard it mentioned a lot of times that traditions get handed down throughout church history. Supposedly in John's older years, when he was still traveling and speaking in gatherings of believers, he had become quite well known, of course, being very close to Jesus, being one of his closest companions during his earthly ministry. People would have respected him and thought highly of him and been excited to have an apostle come and teach, just like we would be. The story goes, the tradition is that a lot of times when he would go to those gatherings and they would begin to move him towards the front where he would speak or to the center of the gathering, that people in the crowd would start to basically yell out, John, give us the good stuff, and John, give us the deep stuff, because they expected him to have these deep hidden truths and deep hidden meanings from Jesus' teachings that others wouldn't know, others wouldn't have, because of the close proximity to Jesus that he had experienced. The story goes that they would usher him up, and he would stand up and begin to speak, and the deep stuff that he would give would be little children love one another. Little children love one another. I think that oral tradition's been so easy to come down from generation to generation to generation all the way to us because you find that in his writing. You find that throughout his teachings here that we ought to love one another. He says, the world will know that you are a child of God if you love one another. If you do not love one another like this, there's a reason to question whether or not you are a child of God. I take that from John's teaching here. Here's why. Love in the family reflects the love of the Father. God has designed his church to be known in this way. He has designed it that we would be known by love for one another. That's what we need to be known for. We should not just be known as those who read the Bible and teach the Bible. That stuff is extremely important. But Jesus himself in John 13 says this, They will know you are my followers when you're loving each other the same way that I loved you. There's some contrast that we need to see here. How do we love like this? How's this possible? There's a lot of confusion in the world about what hate is and what love is. And so I like to, whenever I'm confused about things, I'm like, well, what does the Bible have to say about it? According to the Bible, hate originates with the devil. John goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 and the story of Cain and his brother, and he says Cain murdered his brother Abel. And it says that Cain was of the evil one. It's a reference to the devil, who is the author of sin in Genesis chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, which I think Dad covered last week, it says the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In John chapter 8, Jesus says of the devil that he was a murderer from the beginning. He's the origin of hate, which the Bible basically defines as this, selfishly seeking another's harm. 
Why did Cain murder his brother? According to John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, because Cain was evil and his brother was righteous. Out of self-centered jealousy, Cain murdered his brother. It's the ultimate example of hatred, the desire to harm someone else by taking their life. Cain's saying, I'm going to take what's most precious from you. I'm going to take your very life. But also remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus went on, he said this, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Hatred is not just an outward action. That's what Jesus was getting at. He was getting at the heart in the Sermon on the Mount. He was saying hatred is not just outward action. It's an inward attitude. And the Bible calls every one of us to examine our hearts and to ask some questions. Is there evidence of hatred? An inward attitude of ongoing anger toward others in my heart? in my home, in my workplace, in my community, when I think of certain groups of people, the Bible beckons us, if that's the truth, in what's going on in our hearts, to repent of that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 shows us what the everyday effect of this kind of hatred in our hearts is. John writes, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is just the everyday effect of anger and hatred in our hearts. It's indifference. And if you are indifferent towards someone suffering, you don't act, right? We may not murder someone, we may not express outward rage or anger toward them, but what we're being taught here is if we see a brother who's in need, and we are able to meet that need, yet we choose willingly to close our hearts to them. John says that's not the effect of God's love in your heart. That's the effect of hate. Indifference. This goes beyond just seeking to harm someone to being content, seeing someone who's already harmed and saying, I'm not going to help them at all. The Bible says that is not from God the Father. It's evidence that there's a lack of love in our hearts. Which is why John says, if we back up to verse 13, he says, do not be surprised, brother, brothers, that the world hates you. Remember the way that John uses the term world is a picture of a system that is set up against God. In verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We see all kinds of evidence of hate in the world around us. And the Bible says, don't be surprised by that. Absent of the love of God the Father, hate will be the result. 
But John says, not with you. Not with the church. Not with the children of God. You should be different. There should be a contrast. There's a big contrast between hate and love. The Bible says that love originates with God. 1 John 3.16 makes it clear that we know love because of God. I do not know Dad's speaking schedule and where this is going to fall into his messages in the coming weeks, but eventually he will get to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, which say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's the author. He's the creator. He is the originator of love, and it emanates from him. So if we define hate as selfishly choosing to harm someone, what is love? As we ask that question as students of Scripture, what we see is this. Love selflessly selflessly seeks another's good. Key word there is selflessly. Often we'll seek someone's good if that good will bring some good to us that's how the world loves that's not really selfless selfless love says i will love you even if nothing comes back toward me for it selfless love is totally focused on the good for another selfless love we don't focus on well who deserves it we just show love I'll be honest, I have a hard time now every time dad asked me to substitute because for years, every time he would do that, I would either stop by grandpa's office or I would call grandpa and say, hey, dad's going to be gone. What do you want to (laughs) do? Just being a grandson. Grandpa loved the people of God. He was always wanting to say something to the people of God to bring encouragement, right? I can't count how many times over the years people that I've met in the community that I'm not sure go to church ever have brought up Grandpa's sign. Come as you are, you will be loved. And then they've had some encounter with him and recognized he meant it. I was thinking about it preparing for this morning I doubt anybody in the congregation is aware of something that happened a few years ago church was full Sunday morning I think it was second service the worship team was up here and I think there might have been ministry stuff going on or it had just ended the church was in service was in full swing and I came down that hallway and Gary had just come down from the sound booth And both of us looked towards the back door when uh, a man walked in the back door just in his underwear. And uh, his, he, he looked like he'd had a rough night and a rough morning. And Gary and I looked at each other like, well, what's gonna happen? But we both knew we needed to get towards the back door. 
And the whole time I'm going toward the back door, I was thinking to myself, I don't want to have to tackle a grown man in his underwear. This is going to be weird. But as we're both getting there, and I know that Gary was trying to think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Grandpa came out of his office and came around the corner, and he stopped and looked at this guy and said, well, good morning. And the guy just stopped in his tracks. And Grandpa walked over and put his hand on his shoulder and said, I'm going to pray for you, and started to pray, and the guy just broke like a baby. And Gary and I stood and looked at each other, and I thought, well, that went better than I was thinking it was going to go. And Gary said, that's a gift. And Grandpa took him to the office, and they had a long talk, and Grandpa sent him to get dressed, and he came back, and Grandpa got him some food, some gas in his car, and prayed with him and led him to the Lord that morning. When he said, come as you are, you will be loved, he really meant it. I'm not, I'm not asking anybody to come in their underwear next week, but he really meant it. That guy came as he was, and he was loved. It was selfless. He just wanted good for that guy. He wanted that guy to know he has a heavenly father who sees him, knows him, and loves him. It's been incredible growing up being able to witness that stuff and to see it. We don't ask who deserves it. We just show love. There's a, another example of this that's much greater. And it was the example that compelled my grandpa for all those years. We know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. I mentioned earlier that what Cain took from his brother was his life. His life was precious, and Cain just says, I'm going to take that from you. It's the greatest harm that he could inflict upon him. Contrast that with what's the greatest good that we could do for someone else, and we see it in the story of Jesus to give his life for us. It's what he's done. Human religion is built around what can I do for God? The whole point of the gospel is something much different, is what has God done for us? Out of love for us. We can know what love is because Jesus laid down his life. That's the supreme example of love. So for us, how will that play out in everyday life? Instead of indifference and hate that would lead us to inaction, it should cause us to be filled with compassion. Compassion will then cause a reaction that says, I'm getting involved. I'm reacting to what I see and I will help. Instead of closing our heart to our brother in need and doing nothing, we open our heart and say, there must be something I can do about it. Verse 18 from our text this morning says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John's saying, don't just talk about it, do it. 
Verse 16 says this is what we ought to do. Followers of Jesus should have compassion in our hearts. We should see others in need, which leads to action on their behalf. And when we do this, we're told this is evidence of spiritual life in us. Read verse 14 again. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, if you love people, you will earn eternal life. It says, if you love people, you will show that you have eternal life. Huge difference. Our love for others doesn't earn eternal life. Our love for others is evidence that we have the Lord working within us, living within us. Sacrificial, selfless love is evidence of spiritual life inside of you. This is exactly what he says next in verse 19. We move from contrast. We need to see between love and hate to confidence now that we have as children of God, as his sons and daughters, as his church. A few things here. This is how we know we are of the truth. Verse 20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. There's actually quite a bit of debate among biblical scholars about what exactly this means. Here's my best, fast attempt to summarize what verses 19 and 20 mean. I don't think that we naturally have hearts that are inclined to love selflessly. I think that we're quick to anger, quick to be indifferent, quick to turn away, quick to think of ourselves. How is this going to affect me if I get involved? It's part of having a sinful heart in this world, being focused on self. That's our natural heart. And really what, just, just getting down to the nitty-gritty here, what the Lord wants to do for us is not to change it and modify our behavior. He wants to do a heart transplant. Our natural heart is very self-focused. But 1 John chapter 3 is teaching that God is greater than our hearts. God our Father has given us as his children new hearts. Hearts that are inclined to love the way he loves because we know that we are loved by him. That means, okay, when my heart is prone to hatred or anger and indifference, God gives me some kind of supernatural power as his child to do what doesn't come naturally. To instead choose to give sacrificially, selflessly, even to lay down our lives for others in need. This occurs in a way that is not natural to us. I have not just witnessed grandpa loving people all over the community and in this church selflessly. I have grown up watching people in this church love each other selflessly. I have watched God enable us as his children to love the way that he loves. Be encouraged 
when we come to a passage like this, we're supposed to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be exhorted. I want all of that for us. If I'm not careful, I'm going to speak as long as dead. It's been a while. God is so much greater than our hearts, isn't he? And so we should just ask him on a regular basis, God, enable us to love. As children who are dearly loved, enable us to love one another the way that you have loved us. Produce that in us, we pray. 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22 says, Beloved, that's those who are loved by God, who have his love in their hearts. He says this, Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, that is, if your heart, that is, if God's heart is overcoming our hearts, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. We have to follow this. As God enables us, as His children, to love the way that He loves, we will be more and more inclined to live for what pleases him which totally transforms our prayer lives and that's what this verse is talking about god emboldens us as his children to pray for his purposes we love what he loves we want what he wants we want his will to be done we want his purposes to be done and so we pray with those things in mind Unfortunately, I think there's many who hear verse 22, where it says, whatever we ask, we receive from him, and immediately think, that's awesome. I've got all kinds of things that I haven't received that I want to receive, and I'll just demand those things. That is not what John is talking about. It's not this blanket promise. Ask anything that you can dream up to ask. We need to understand this in its context. This verse is saying the key to prayer is God's heart overtaking our heart as his children. That we would love the way that he loves. We would desire what he desires. And that would transform our prayer life because we're praying for what pleases God. It might start out this way. God, I know that you're pleased when your name is glorified. And so I pray, God, that you're glorified in this situation. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glorify your name. Father, I know this pleases you, so I'm praying, glorify yourself in my life. God's pleased to answer that kind of prayer. We could pray this way, God, I know that you're pleased to show your power in my weakness. And I'm feeling very weak. So please, God, give strength in my weakness. Or how about, God, I know it pleases you to give wisdom, and I'm in a hard situation, and I'm in need of your wisdom, so I'm trusting you for it. We might ask God to get accepted, offered a new job, 
to heal this disease or a number of other things going on in our lives, and it's not wrong to ask for those things. In fact, it's right as his children to make every petition and supplication known to him. But we ask for those things with a heart that trusts that our Father knows what's best. So I might pray, God, I ask that you would give me favor with this employer that I would get this job. At the same time, I'm trusting you that you know what's best for me, and that might not be getting this job. I want to follow you wherever you lead me. God, I'm praying and I'm pleading with you to heal me or my loved one of this disease or that illness. Yet as I'm asking you for that, I know that you are my father, you're a good father, that you are always good and you always know what's best. And more than anything, I just want you to be glorified. And God emboldens us as his children to be driven to prayer with a heart that's aligned to his saying, God, I want what you want. Please follow John's progression here. He says, as children of God, God enables us to love like he loves. He emboldens us to pray for his purposes. And then finally, he empowers us as his children to live by his spirit. At the end of this passage that we started with this morning, in verses 23 and 24, we read this beautiful summary of the Christian life which is a supernatural life. In verse 23, John describes a basic twofold commandment. He says, first, we must believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That means that we trust Jesus as our Savior. He's the Lord of our lives. And then second, love one another. These two things go together. When you believe, you will love one another. When you believe that he is the Son of God and that he has saved you from your sins, that he has done that out of love for you, you will love one another. These things are only possible by a supernatural work of the Spirit of God within you. How does someone come to believe in the Son? The Spirit of God does some work, right? That's our testimony. Every Christian that's gathering, not just here, but anywhere this morning, singing praise to the Lord, is doing so with the same testimony. They were away from God, walking in their own ways. And at some point, God opened their eyes by his spirit and drew us to him. We believe in him because we were drawn by him. This is a supernatural life, and I love the imagery here. God is abiding in us, and we are abiding in him. And I think Dad closed with this thought last week. He's producing life in us. And here's another beautiful part. It's not just affecting us. It's meant to affect those around us. It's a supernatural life for us. That's characterized by supernatural love for one another. That's his desire. That's our father's desire for his children. That's our father's desire for this church. And I pray that we live in his love, abide in his love, and love one another as a result. 
I'll stop because I feel like I've talked as long as dead. Might not be true, but that's a good place to stop. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. What manner of love is this that you would call us your children? That you would invite us to cry out to you, Abba Father. It's incredible. I pray that we are immersed in that, we're amazed by it, and that we receive it joyfully, gladly. And that, Lord, as recipients of that love, who are immersed in it and amazed by it, we cannot help but love one another, knowing that that brings honor and glory to your name when your children love one another. And that, Lord, we would experience that blessing that you command where we dwell in unity. And we dwell in unity because we know that we are loved by you and as children, we are supposed to love one another. So I pray you strengthen us to do that, to experience your love, to know your love, to then know how to love one another, have that align our prayer life as we walk by your spirit, as you abide in us and we abide in you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone have a great day.